Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute. For those of you who don't know, I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute. For those of you who do know, you know we usually do things at noon, but we always worry about whether uh, noon is a good time for people who have actual jobs in the private sector or whatever, so that maybe uh, evening would make some of those people more able to attend. So we're delighted to have you here for the first talk in uh, the first public talk here in the Hayek Auditorium by our new president. Um, I'm going to note that we have increasingly at our events an online audience that's often bigger than the number of people here, and in order to make them feel part of the event, we try to uh, uh, take questions from the online audience. So once uh, we're done with the formal speech, we will be taking questions in here, but also uh, people watching online will be emailing questions in or Twittering or whatever they're doing. I assume it explains on there. I think it is very important to understand the financial crisis that hit the United States and the world in late 2008, partly because it was important to all of our economic and personal lives, but partly also because it will shape our political dialogue for years or decades, just the way the Great Depression did. Um, so it's important to know what actually happened, and I'm sure all of you know that there have been a lot of journalists and pundits and public figures blaming capitalism, claiming that the credit crisis means the end of libertarianism or the end of American capitalism or whatever. And that's why I think it is important to place the blame accurately. Now, we haven't all agreed yet on what happened in the Great Depression, so we're probably not likely to agree by the end of this evening or the end of this year what happened in the Great Recession or the Great Crisis or whatever, but it's important to talk about it. I thought that the late Christopher Hitchens put it rather pithily when he wrote, there are many causes of the subprime and derivative horror show that has destroyed our trust in the idea of credit, but one way of defining it would be to say that everybody was promised everything and almost everybody fell for the populist bait. And I think that's a good line. I've used it several times. Everybody was promised everything, and that included cheap money, easy lending, rising home prices, rising portfolios, all beneficently given to us. But that's enough from me about the financial crisis because we do have an expert here to discuss that. So let me just say uh, that I'm pleased to welcome only the second president in the 36-year history of the Cato Institute, John Allison. Many of you know John Allison spent almost 40 years at BB&T. During his 20 years as chairman and CEO, he took it from an organization with $4.5 billion in assets to $152 billion, made it um, one of the 10 largest financial institutions in the country, and one that over the past decade, I think, was often praised. John was named one of the top 100 worldwide CEOs by Harvard Business Review, but also sometimes criticized for not getting on this train of cheap money and subprime and so on. And John and the other leaders of BB&T were criticized. You're not growing as fast as the other banks. Why don't you get involved in these fields? In the long run, I think he feels pretty good about the decisions he made during that period. Um, 
I think that he might have first come to broad public attention beyond the banking finance community uh, when we, many of us in this room, remember reading that BB&T announced it would no longer lend to projects supported by eminent domain. And that's when we first said, well, that's very interesting. That's a banker who's different from the standard bankers. Um, he did retire about four years ago. He had a very busy retirement. Um, he was a distinguished professor at the Wake Forest University School of Business. He did uh, also served on the board there and at a couple of other universities. He did a lot of speaking. He obviously wrote a book. Um, he worked with the BB&T Foundation to help put free market ideas in a lot of universities. There are a lot of BB&T professors around. And we're very fortunate that he stepped in after this busy, not-quite-retirement, uh, to take a job uh, as the second president of the Cato Institute. Please welcome John Allison. Thanks, David, and uh, good evening. Thank all of you for being here this evening. Um, the uh, thought I'd like to start with is to reflect on why I really wrote this book. And I guess in one way, one of the primary reasons I thought it would be interesting to have a book by somebody that actually knew what happened. I thought that would be very interesting. Because <laughs> I hear all this stuff on TV, these people that are so certain that they don't have any idea what they're talking about. Uh, secondly, uh, I wanted to get rid of a myth. And the myth is that the financial crisis was caused by the deregulation of the financial services industry and by greed on Wall Street. Well, first place, the financial services industry was not deregulated. We had a massive increase in regulations during the Bush administration. Three main major new laws, the Privacy Act, the Patriot Act, Sarbanes-Oxley. We were misregulated, not deregulated. And then secondly, while in my 40-year career, there has always been plenty of greed on Wall Street and plenty of fear. There's not one shred of evidence there was a suddenly a greed plague that swept across Wall Street. There was nothing new in terms of greed on Wall Street. In fact, um, in my book, I have six basic themes. Uh, the first theme is that the, uh, the primary cause of the financial crisis was government policy. We don't live in a free market in the United States. We live in a very mixed economy. The mixture varies by in industry. Technology is the least regulated industry and has done very well. Financial services is the most regulated industry in the world. It's not surprising that our big problems have come out of the most regulated industry. Uh, secondly, uh, government policy created a massive misinvestment, what's called a bubble. that got focused primarily in residential real estate. That bubble burst, destroying millions of jobs and trillions of dollars of wealth. Thirdly, a number of large financial institutions, so-called Wall Street, made a number of major mistakes. If I had been in charge, I'd have let those institutions fail. However, those mistakes were secondary, and they were all incented by government policy. Uh, fourthly, and most unfortunately, almost everything we've done since the financial crisis started, even things that may have had a short-term benefit, will reduce, and in many cases, materially reduce our standard of living in the long term. Um, fifth, and, and most important, uh, the real cause of the financial crisis is not economic. It's philosophical, and the real cure is philosophical. And finally, if we don't change direction soon, we face some really severe economic consequences uh, in the long term for our children and, and our grandchildren. Um, okay, what happened? Uh, we built and invested at least $3 trillion, too much in residential real estate. 
uh, probably as much as $8 trillion. Depends on how you measure it. But at least $3 trillion. Built too many houses, too big of houses, built houses in the wrong place. We should have been investing in technology, manufacturing capacity, agriculture, uh, education. We should have saved more and spent less. We should have borrowed less from foreigners. Overinvestment in real estate is particularly destructive. Houses are consumption. Now, people think of a house as a personal investment, but from an economic perspective, we consume a house just like we consume an automobile. So we overconsumed. We ate our seed corn as, a, as a, uh, an agricultural example. Um, if you look at that uh, misinvestment, what happened in that process is we taught millions of people how to do the wrong things. Uh, this, this bubble, it went exponential, but it started back in the early 1990s. So we taught millions of people how to build houses, to be residential uh, uh, lenders, to be uh, real estate attorneys. And those millions of people are having to learn new jobs, which is one reason that unemployment has uh, remained fairly stuck. The other thing we did is manufacturing jobs and construction jobs are, are competitive. If you artificially drive up construction wages, you artificially drive up manufacturing wages, and in that process, we sent a lot of manufacturing jobs overseas that we cannot get back. How did we make a mistake of that magnitude? How did we make a three to eight trillion dollar error? It's interesting that markets are constantly making mistakes and are constantly learning. They're a constant correction process. However, markets never make mistakes of that magnitude. Um, the two primary culprits that created this massive misinvestment with the Federal Reserve and government housing policy, specifically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the giant government-sponsored enterprises that would never exist in, in a free market. In fact, the primary cause is the Federal Reserve. And in my 40-year career, every economic misinvestment, the roots have always been in errors made by the Federal Reserve. Now, this is an interesting thing. Any of you that have studied economics or studied finance uh, know this, but you might not think about what the implications are. In 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, the monetary system in the United States was nationalized. There is no private monetary system. Um, the government owns the monetary system. If something goes wrong in the monetary system, by definition, it's a government policy problem. If, if interstate highway bridges were falling down, people would say, wow, uh, government owns the bridges, they're falling down. It's a government's problem. The government owns the monetary bridges in the United States. The Federal Reserve was created in theory to reduce volatility in the economy. In practice, what they do is reduce volatility in the short term and create bigger problems in the long term. Why is that? Free markets are constant experiments. We're constantly learning. For every Google, there's a, foul, a thousand failed Googles. And part of the experimental process is letting companies fail. New companies are created. Old companies are going out, going out of business. And that releases their resources, their human and physical capital to produce other goods and services. When you stop that downside process, you just make problems bigger in the future. It'd be analogous to not disciplining a 13-year-old child. And then when they get 16, you're going to be real unhappy with their behavior. Um, in addition, there were some very specific concrete problems that set up the mess uh, that we're still struggling with today. In the early 2000s, Alan Greenspan, who had been the longtime head of the Federal Reserve, wanted to go out a hero. He was getting ready to retire, and he wanted to go out a hero. We were having a minor correction that we really needed to have, but he didn't want that to happen, so we printed a bunch of money, uh, creating what's called negative real interest rates. That meant that you could borrow at less than the inflation rate, and you could borrow at a lot less the, than the appreciation rate in real estate, which incented a massive level of borrowing. Um, 
In a certain mathematical sense, the only way that there would be money to create a bubble is if the Fed provided it. Where did the money come from otherwise? The Fed created a huge monetary incentive for people to overconsume. Because when, pe- when the Federal Reserve is printing money and we don't exactly realize what's going on, we tend to think we're wealthier than we are. And that's exactly what happened. People overconsumed. And the overconsumption got largely focused in the housing market because of government housing policy. Now, this actually goes back a long time. It goes back, really, to the 1930s, but it particularly got accelerated in the 1970s. And the theory in government housing policy is to raise home ownership above what's called the natural market rate because owning a home is a good thing. Well, it's very interesting. Owning a home is a good thing, but there's no evidence that owning a home per se changes the human behavior. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The set of characteristics that enable you to own a home, self-discipline, uh, uh, being willing to, to, to self-control is what makes home ownership a good thing. And certainly incenting people to buy homes that they can't afford, uh, young people to buy homes before they've saved enough is not a good thing, and we've got the negative consequences of that. In the early 1970s, um, we had things called the Community Reinvestment Act, which basically forced banks to get into the low-income uh, lending business. And banks are not designed to do low-income loans because we're lending other people's money through, through deposits. But the really big event that, that spir- eventually spiraled out of control happened in September of 1999, I remember well, where Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, announced a goal for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, these two giant government-sponsored enterprises, to have half their loan portfolio in affordable housing, i.e. subprime loans. And interestingly enough, a number of economists, including uh, uh, an article that's actually written in the, in the New York Times of all places, said, wow, this is risky. The legitimate subprime market is not that big. And if Freddie and Fannie try to reach this goal, they could get in financial trouble, and they are so big they could take out the U.S. financial system, and it could happen in 10 years. And nine years later, it happened. Um, Freddie and Fannie sound like an abstract, but today, uh, if you go down to a local bank or anywhere to get a home mortgage, there's a 90% probability that either Freddie, Fannie, or what's called the FHA, their sister institution, will buy that mortgage. They absolutely dominate the home finance business in the United States, and they've done that for a number of years since the demise of the S&L industry. They make the rules in the industry. They establish the standards. Uh, when Freddie and Fannie failed, they had $5 trillion in liabilities that you now inherited as a taxpayer. Congratulations. And they had $2 trillion in subprime mortgages. They were the absolute dominant player in the subprime mortgage business. Uh, and uh, politics played a huge role in Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. I was personally on a committee of the Financial Services Roundtable for uh, nine years trying to do something about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Uh, we were running the numbers, and it was mathematically certain they were going broke. Anybody in this room, I'd say a 15-year-old, could look at the numbers and say, wow, these guys are going broke. We met with Congress on numerous occasions with people like Barney Frank and Chris Dodd, which are very interesting people. Uh, I call Barney Frank the evil one because he's actually smart. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but he absolutely refused to listen. And why did he refuse to listen? Uh, first, he had what I'd call a, a religious uh, belief in affordable housing. It was just a good thing. And secondly, Freddie and Fannie were huge political contributors. They were the single biggest contributor to the Democratic Party, and they were one of the biggest contributors to the Republican Party. So they just watched Freddie and Fannie go, go broke. Um, it's very... Uh, Interesting, while there's a lots of complexities uh, in regards to the financial crisis, fundamentally, 
We had the, the, the massive misinvestment, waste of capital, waste of human resources driven by the Federal Reserve into the housing market by the affordable housing policies, the subprime lending part problem, uh, policies of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And when somebody like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae has that big a market share, anybody that's ever been in business, you can't not do what they do. They brought down the standards in the whole industry. Now, there are lots of important other considerations that I try to cover in my book that I won't try to cover tonight just simply for time purposes. Things like the role of, of, uh, of fair value accounting, a lot of misconception of what the derivatives market really was, way un, uh, lack of understanding of the derivatives markets, way o over emphasis on the so-called con contagion risk, which was grossly exaggerated. I try to cover that all uh, in the book. I'd be glad to answer questions about it. Uh, also, I try to propose some economic cures that I believe this group would probably agree with. But what I really want to talk about is, uh, is as interesting and as important the economics are, the real cause of the financial crisis and the real cure is philosophical. The real cause of the financial crisis was a combination of altruism and pragmatism. Altruism is not benevolence. It's really otherism. It says that everybody else is important but you. And by state, its altruism becomes that the community matters and the individual is irrelevant. The individual simply doesn't matter. Everybody has a right to a nice house. Provided by who? Everybody has a right to free medical care. Provided by who? And my right to free medical care is my right to uh, force a doctor to provide me with that medical care or force somebody else to pay that doctor. That is exactly the opposite of the American concept of rights. In the American concept of rights, you have the right to what you produce, what you create. You don't have the right to what somebody else produces and what somebody else creates. Um, in business, we play a little lip service to altruism. We run ads acting like we're altruistic. But businesses in a globally competitive economy cannot be altruistic. They will be out of business really quick. Uh, so the backup philosophy for most business people is pragmatism. And the rule in pragmatism is to do what works. However, unfortunately, lots of things work in the short term that are incredibly destructive in the long term. Um, subprime mortgages worked for years. Negative amortization mortgages worked for years before they became an economic disaster. Uh, problem with being a pragmatist, you can't be rational. Because rationality demands a long-term perspective. You also can't have integrity. Because integrity is acting consistent with principle. Hence, so many ethical violations in business. You combine altruism with pragmatism, you get something I call the free lunch mentality. It's very interesting where people start in their discussions about dealing with the terrific economic problems the United States faces. And, and usually it's all about somebody else giving up something. Very few people want to objectively give up their free lunch. Unfortunately, too, the free lunch mentality leads to a lack of personal responsibility. And a lack of personal responsibility is ultimately the death of democracies. Um, in fact, I would argue the central issue in our society today is personal responsibility. Are you responsible for yourself or are you entitled to what somebody else produces? And the Founding Fathers talked about the tyranny of the majority and they were talking about the abuse of individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But they also recognized that when 51% of the people figured out they could vote a free lunch from 49%, pretty soon the party's over. 
because then 60% want a free lunch from 40%, then 70% want a free lunch from 30%, and finally the 30% quit. Just like the, the uh, cause of our, our financial problems are philosophical, so is our cure. And the cure was expressed by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's fundamental moral right to their own life. Each individual's moral right to the pursuit of their personal happiness. Each individual's moral right to the product of their labor. If you produce a lot, you get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever you want to on whatever terms you want to. Now, if you think about that moral prerogative, it demands personal responsibility because there is no free lunch. It also demands and rewards rationality. It demands and rewards self-discipline. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, as libertarians, uh, we're advocates of liberty. But interestingly enough, most people are advocates of liberty uh, of all kind of political persuasions because people use liberty in very loose terms. And a lot of times when people talk about liberty, it's kind of, well, I'd like to be free, and that's an interesting thing. But liberty is a lot more profound than that. It's a lot more profound because it has to do with man's fundamental nature. Everything that's alive has a method of staying alive. A lion has claws to hunt with, the deer has capacity to run from the hunter, and we have the capacity to think. And our capacity to think is literally our only means of survival, success, and happiness. And no shortcuts, or no, there are no free lunches. In order to think productively, in order to sustain and promote our life, given our nature as human beings, we have to be free. Because we have to be able to pursue what we believe is right. If somebody tells you that 2 plus 2 is 5, and you have to act like 2 plus 2 is 5, you literally can't think. And that's what government rules and regulations do to business people. I personally experienced that. And if you think about it, all human progress, by definition, is based on creativity. Because unless somebody does something better, which will be different, there cannot be any progress. Creativity is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. That's why entrepreneurs are so important. They take the ideas of scientists and engineers and turn them into reality. It's why socialism and communism is doomed to failure because it destroys innovation and destroys creativity. Very interesting uh, 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 historical fact. If you look at whenever Homo sapiens evolved, 250,000 B.C., until 1750, human life expectancy basically was the same. And then in 1750s, the late 1700s, there was a phenomenal invention, an invention equal to fire, equal to the wheel. And that invention was the idea of individual rights, of rule of law, limited government, of capitalism. It took a long time for capitalism to evolve, but capitalism is what changed life expectancy on this earth more than most other material inventions. And what capitalism was about was people being able to pursue their own thought process consistent with our nature as human beings. So liberty isn't just nice. It is necessary for human well-being. How about the pursuit of happiness? You know, before Jefferson, before the thinkers of the Enlightenment, Everybody existed for somebody else's good. Good the king, good the state, good the church. Nobody existed for their own good. What Jefferson said is that each one of us has the moral right to pursuit of our personal happiness. Uh, we're not guaranteed success in that pursuit, but we have that right. And if you think about that, that is actually a very selfish idea, isn't it? 
And it's important that we define selfish properly in that context. And I'll define it as acting in one's rational self-interest properly understood. And the reason for trying to define it that way is we get thrown a false alternative. And this is kind of the false alternative we get in society. And the false alternative is to take advantage of other people or to self-sacrifice, neither one of which make any sense. In fact, a lot of people think that taking advantage of other people is selfish. Here's the irony. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. In the first place, nobody's going to trust you. You might fool Tom, Dick, and Harry, but they're going to tell Sue and Jane and Fred, and nobody's going to trust you. In addition, if you go around trying to manipulate other people's minds, you're going to do a lot more damage to yourself than you do to them. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. How about self-sacrifice? That is the moral code in our society, and the moral code is is that we should self-sacrifice. I want to ask you to ask yourself a profoundly important question. And for those of you that have children, make sure your children have the opportunity to ask themselves this question. Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Of course you do. Why would you believe anything different than that? So self-sacrifice and taking advantage of other people, neither one make any sense. But there is a proper moral code, and it's a rigorous, demanding code that underlies free societies and underlies free markets. And that code is that we're fundamentally traders. We trade value for value. We get better together. In our business, we help our clients be economically successful and financially secure at BB&T when I was running BB&T, and we made a profit doing it. In fact, life is about creating win-win relationships. There are only two stable relationship conditions, win-win and lose-lose, Whenever we get greedy and we set up a win-lose, our partner gets bitter. You see this in spousal relationships, and we end up in a win-win, I mean, a lose-lose relationship. Whenever we get self-sacrificial and we set up a, a lose-win relationship, we'll get better, and we end up in a lose-lose relationship. So in any meaningful relationship in your life, you should ask, what's in it for me? That's a fair question. But you should also ask, what's in it for them? Because if there's nothing in it for them, at the end of the day, there'll be nothing in it for you. And of course, it's in your rational self-interest to help the people you care about, your family, your friends, the people you work with. Um, I happen to believe it's in my rational self-interest to support the United Way, which is an umbrella charity organization that does a lot of good in the community, and I wouldn't want to live in the kind of community that would exist if there was no United Way. So it's interesting to think about what the demands are for acting in your rational self-interest. It would require that you have a sense of purpose, that you take care of your mind, that you take care of your body, that you work hard to create healthy human relationships, and you do that all within the context of the kind of world you'd like to be in. You kind of ask yourself, what kind of world would I enjoy doing, and what would I enjoy doing helping create that world? Just think if everybody acted in in their self-interest in that regard. I would argue about 90% of the world's problems would go away. I don't think most people are selfish. I think most people are self-destructive. I had a brother-in-law drank 24 beers a day, uh, got cirrhosis of the liver, drank 24 beers a day, and he died. And people said, wow, he was selfish. No, he was self-destructive, self-destructive. Jefferson had a profound insight in the pursuit of the happiness. That is really what motivates human behavior and creates great outcomes in free societies. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, Share with you in my book, I have some economic projections, even though I don't believe economic projection is possible. But I'm going to give you some short-term projections and some longer-term projections, which I do think are possible. Um, We are probably in some kind of economic uh, recovery, which is in some ways a good news, but in other ways I think it obscures a lot deeper problems. 
I think the most likely scenario, certainly not certain, is that we're going to have something that looks like the 1970s, which we call stagflation, where we have some real growth, but way below par real growth, uh, lower unemployment than today, but higher unemployment than we ought to have, and, and higher inflation over time. It's not a terrible time, but it's not a good time. What really petrifies me is what happens in the long term, in 20, 25 years down the road. We have a formula for economic disaster. If we continue with altruism, pragmatism, free lunch mentality, uh, we face some really severe negative consequences. The unfunded liabilities under Social Security, Medicare, the new Obamacare program, the unfunded uh, government pension plans are in excess of $100 trillion. That is a stunning number. We're running over $1 trillion annual operating deficits. We have a dysfunctional farm policy. We have a really big problem with the retirement of the baby boomer generations and all us old folks want to continue to be fed. And we've got a failed K-12 education system. It reminds me a lot of that story I talked about running the numbers for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae where it was mathematically certain they were going broke. That is exactly true for the United States. It is mathematically certain the United States goes broke unless we change direction. That's not, it is not, that's not politics. That's just a mathematical fact. Um, now, countries don't go broke the way um, uh, businesses go broke. What they classically do is they hyperinflate and they pay their debts with funny money. So you get paid Social Security, but the money isn't worth anything. And they almost always, not always, but they almost always move towards statism, and statism reduces their standard of living even further. Argentina, 1940, had a higher standard of living in the United States. Despite having vast natural resources, Argentina is a third world economy today. We're the next Argentina if we don't change directions. There is some positive signs. We still have time. These things go exponential in about seven to eight years. If we don't do something between now and seven to eight years, it becomes almost mathematically impossible to, out, out, to fix it without probably some form of social chaos that none of us will be excited about participating in. Um, the question is, do we have the courage to fix it? I would use an analogy with, uh, with uh, medicine. We've been identified as having a form of cancer that is terminal unless it is treated. The good news is it's treatable. However, the treatment is chemotherapy, and chemotherapy is not much fun. So the question is, are we willing to go through the chemotherapy to preserve uh, the great strength and the long-term economic viability of the United States? Um, you can get kind of pessimistic about that. I'm, interestingly enough, and maybe surprising, uh, I'm in the optimistic category. And the reason I'm optimistic is that I do think the United States has a unique and special sense of life. And I think Americans are highly innovative, highly entrepreneurial, and many Americans, hopefully a majority of Americans, are skeptical of big government. They want, to, they want to live as free people. And that has ultimately been a great protection for our society. Um, I'm going to close with one more thought targeted at groups like this. In addition to failures in, in economic policy and failures in philosophy, we also had lots of failures in leadership, failures in leadership in government, and lots of failures in leadership in business. And, and I want to talk about that because I think that's another part of the formula for our long-term success. You know, uh, fortunately, my company, BB&T, did better through the financial crisis than any large institution in the United States, given our business. And we were primarily a real estate lender, and we never had a single quarterly loss. And people ask me why. Well, we had some great people. We got some good strategies. But we really didn't have that much better people or that much better strategies than our competitors. What we had that was different was we have a very fundamental philosophy 
that we live rigorously in good times and in bad times. And we have 10 core values in that philosophy. And, and, and underlying those, th- those 10 core values are what I think are the three great virtues. The three great virtues. Purpose, reason, and self-esteem. Purpose, reason, and self-esteem. As human beings, we are purpose-directed entities. We have to know where we're going in order to get there. Organizations, businesses, churches, civic organizations, universities are simply groups of human beings. For organizations to be successful, the people in the organization must vest in the purpose of the organization. At the individual level, something I find very discouraging is how many people, when I talk to them, describe their work as just some kind of burden. I've got to go to work. And if you think about all the time, effort, and energy you spend at work, wow, are you missing what life is about? And by the way, this is not practice. This is it. This is your life. If you want to have passion and energy in your life, you have to have a sense of purpose in your work. Um, And it's very interesting. While the content of purpose, I'm sure, will vary a lot by the people in this room, I would argue the context is the same for everybody here. And the context has two fundamental components. First component, I believe that every person in this room wants to make the world a better place to live. I don't think you'd be here tonight if you didn't want to make the world a better place to live. In fact, I think that's a characteristic of the vast majority of human beings. Not everybody, but the vast majority of human beings do want to make the world a better place to live. Now, it's very interesting. There are lots of ways you can make the world a better place to live. You don't have to go over to Africa and feed hungry children to make the world a better place to live. Um, Businesses make the world a better place to live. We produce products and services that improve the quality of life. In fact, the primary difference between the quality of life in the United States and, and Africa is we have better businesses. Business is the act of production. And we... Libertarians are actually defenders of that production process. And by the way, before anybody can give something away, somebody has to produce it. And my life experience is producing it's a lot harder than giving it away. Business is noble work. Good doctors, good teachers, good homemakers, good scholars uh, make the world a better place to live. There are lots of ways to make the world a better place to live, but you need to believe that your work is making the the world a better place to live. The second component of purpose is equally important and far under discussed. You need to make the world a better place to live doing something you want to do for you. You have a fundamental right to your own life. And if you were to make the world a better place to live, but you didn't enjoy doing it, you will have wasted the most precious thing you have, which is you. And by the way, if you try to make the world a better place to live doing something you don't want to do, the odds are you won't do it very well. So you need to make the world a better place to live doing something you want to do for you. And that creates a sense of purpose. The means by which we accomplish our, our purpose is our capacity to think. We use the term reason. Uh, human beings, we have a special means of survival, success, and happiness. That is our capacity to think rationally from the facts of reality. When I talked to the employees of BB&T, however, I said, you know, that that's not about IQ. I don't know how much you can change your IQ, and I know some very smart people that do some very destructive things. But there is a choice you can make about your thinking. And that choice is to commit yourself to be a master of whatever it is you choose to do. And if you look at people that have achieved mastery, they have very active minds, and they're committed to being lifelong learners. And they're particularly effective at learning from their life experiences. In fact, as human beings, we're primarily experiential learners. And if you look at people that are superior experiential learners, they do two simple but profound things well. Probably everybody in this room can associate with learning from your mistakes. You probably had mistakes that changed your life. However, unfortunately, a lot of times we don't learn from our mistakes, so we embed them in our personality, and we get to do them over and over again. Um, Why do we do that? 
In order to learn from a mistake, we have to avoid the ultimate psychological sin, which is the act of evasion. Evasion occurs when you're presented with some piece of information that at some level you know needs to be examined. But you refuse to examine it because it threatens something you want to believe about the world or you want to believe about yourself so you literally don't hear it. You know, I had the opportunity to know a lot of these CEOs, a lot of them for a long time, of organizations that fail. And an interesting characteristic, every one of them was very smart. Every one of them was well-educated. Every one of them had been very successful in their field. You know what got them almost all in trouble? They evaded. There was information before them that they could have analyzed, but they didn't want to hear it because it would be painful to hear it. It would cause painful changes, uh, and they didn't want to face it. Everybody that I know invades in some area of your life. Next time you uh, hear something from your parents, spouses, friends, managers uh, that you heard before and you know ought to be examined, have the courage to examine it. Um, the second thing that superior, very superior experiential learners do is recognize that life is a constant education if you choose to make it one. You know, I had the opportunity when I was running BB&T to visit our community banks. We operate with 33 community banks, and I was fortunate to have lunches with our local advisory board members who were business community leaders, and I never had a boring lunch because they were always asking questions. They were always talking about going on. They were engaged. You could understand why they had been successful. They were in focus. Unfortunately, a lot of people live their lives out of focus, and when you're out of focus, you can't learn, you can't grow. Sometimes IQ gives people advantage, sometimes not. One characteristic I find of successful people in all fields, they evade less and they stay in focus more, which is a huge competitive advantage in life. When you're clear about your purpose and when you use your thinking capacity to accomplish your purpose, you get to do something really important. You get to raise your self-esteem. And self-esteem is the foundation for happiness. And happiness is the end of the game, right? Uh, and I mean happiness not having a good time on Friday night, but happiness in the Aristotelian sense of a life well lived. Blood, sweat, and tears happiness. When you're 80 years old, you can look back and say, yeah, that was hard, and I'm glad I did it. Earned happiness based on achieving things that are valuable and important to you. Paid for with hard work, mental focus, effort, and energy. That's what the game is about, right? And the human, as human beings, our goal is to pursue our personal happiness. And interesting enough, uh, sometimes business people get confused. They think money's the end of the game. Nothing wrong with money. Money's a good thing. However, money is not an end. It can be a means to an end. It is, it is not an end. Happiness is the end of the game. And the foundation for happiness is real self-esteem. And real self-esteem uh, also has to be earned. A couple of thoughts about self-esteem. Uh, self-esteem is fundamentally self-confidence and your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. Therefore, you earn your self-esteem by how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You cannot give anybody self-esteem. You cannot give your children self-esteem. Uh, live your life with integrity. Raise your self-esteem. That's why self-esteem is so important. That's why integrity is so important. Another thought about self-esteem that actually has pretty big societal implications that we're in a discussion of in a profound way uh, without really focusing on the issue. For everybody in this room, probably, and for the, mo for the vast majority of people on this planet, the single biggest driver of self-esteem is your work because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. That's what makes work important. It drives your self-esteem. And I use work in the broadest context, raising children, very hard, very productive work. Whatever you define your work to be, it will drive your self-esteem. 
Something I've said many times to the employees of BB&T. It's real important to BB&T that you do your job well, but it's far, far, far more important to you. Might fool me about how well you do your job, might fool your boss about how well you do your job, but you'll never fool you. And if you don't do your work the best you can possibly do it, given your level of skill, given your level of knowledge, you can't do the impossible. But if you don't do your work the best you can possibly do it, you will lower your self-esteem. Now, here's the good news. The flip's also true. Do your work the best you can do it. Given your level of skill, given your level of knowledge, you can't do the impossible. But do your work the best you can possibly do it, and you will raise your self-esteem, which is more important than whether you get a promotion or more money, because it's about your character. It's about who you are. And that idea actually has very profound social implications. Very profound uh, social implications in regards to what we as libertarians believe. Take a uh, construction worker, bricklayer. Has a really tough, hard, grinding job. My granddad had, had that kind of job. Real tough, hard, grinding job. But somehow he and his, his wife raised their children successfully. Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company. Maybe not. He has a hard, tough life, but he gets something really precious from his work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets to have self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may be better off financially, but he loses something incredibly important. He loses his pride. He loses his self-esteem. You know, there's a lot of discussion in our society today about security, and Americans care about security, but this is not the land of security. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is the land of opportunity. Opportunity to be great, opportunity to fail and try again, but most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live life on his own terms to pursue his personal happiness, given his beliefs, his values, to live as a free and independent man. And that is the American sense of life, which is what made the United States great. It is why people keep coming to the United States. It is our great source of strength. It is very precious to protect, and that's really why I wrote my book. Thank you very much. Questions? We got a lot of them. Uh, Just a second. Thank you, John. Um, we will uh, bring microphones around, so uh, John I, will call on people, but please don't talk until the microphone gets there. And let me just point out that the one thing I forgot to say in the introduction was we're here to talk about John's new book, The uh, Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure. And we have copies out there for you to buy and get them signed, and we also have copies that you can buy on our website or at any good bookstore in America. Now, let's take some questions. All right. Let's, uh, I'll start up here at the front. Yes, sir. Uh, Ramon Bueller. Ramon Bueller with a group called the Madison Coalition. And my question is, you've watched the American political process now for many years. Do you think that the Congress of the United States and the president are capable of the long-term fiscal discipline that the country requires, or do you think there might need to be some kind of constitutional discipline uh, either imposed by Congress or perhaps even imposed by the states? Well, that's a great question. Um, here's a, a good little context. I believe, unfortunately, that we get the politicians we deserve. 
And it's the ideas that matter. That's why I talked so much about ideas. And that the biggest issue is changing the ideas, restoring the ideas that made America great in the first place. If we could do that, now that's, we've got to take back the public school system and get a private school system, then we could change the game. In the interim, I think we're primarily buying time. I think three things that would help in, in terms of what I'd call, what you call structure. One, I do think, and I've had mixed emotions over the years, but I really think we need term limits. I think we've turned too many politicians into professional politicians, and that's unhealthy. I would vote for a constitutional amendment that had some kind of restriction on government spending. I know it's not perfect, and they'll cheat, but at least it's progress. But I think a third thing that's way underestimated is I think we need to force the Federal Reserve to go to a gold standard. And the reason for that, if you can print money, as the Federal Reserve is doing right now, and politicians of both parties, no matter how much they squawk, are buying votes with that money, uh, it's the, the temptation to leverage is huge. When the Federal Reserve was created, the United States had no debt, basically. We'd gone through the Civil War, which was, you know, a hundred times more dramatic than the United States in World War II, and, and the country had paid off its debt without a central bank, without a Federal Reserve. And now we have this incredible debt, and it couldn't have been facilitated if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve. So I think a gold standard, I'm for private banking, but a minimum of a gold standard that discipline the Federal Reserve. In fact, I would actually put that number one on the list because it really would make Congress hard, make hard for Congress to borrow. Let me get one uh, question away from, well, the phones are down here. I, let me, I'll call here and then I'll, I'll go back. Hi, Lisa Miller, Tea Party WDC. Uh, my question is, uh, if we did convert to a gold standard, then we would have to uh, necessarily immediately cut spending. And we have an example of that with Harding and Coolidge. And within 18 months, the private sector had recovered all the jobs lost from crony capitalism and government spending. Um, I guess my question is, is wouldn't that not force the states to reform their education system? It would force them to change their constitutions to means-tested only, fully portable, and maybe even devolve it down to the local level and or to the private sector entirely. I don't know. I don't know what all the ripple through effects of the gold standard would be, but I think they would be big <laughs> because it would really immediately impose discipline on government. And that, so that's why I think it's the number one step. It doesn't cure all our problems because they can, they can cheat around even gold standards. But the history of economic well-being is very correlated when the reserve currency of the world, the United States dollar is the reserve currency of the world, is tie, tied to something that can't be manipulated by politicians traditionally been gold or silver, but when, when politicians can manipulate the, the standard of value, they cheat a lot. So, and, and when you can't cheat, then it does force discipline and makes you do more rational things. Let me get in the middle. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Diane Katz with the Heritage Foundation. Given that um, the primary causes of the financial crisis were government policy, and the supposed remedy, Dodd-Frank, is even more bad government policy. Um, I don't know how, to, how would he get out of that. Well, that's a great question. I, I, you know, Romney has said, but that, I don't know what that means, that we, he would repeal Dodd-Frank. And if you want to restore economic growth in the United States, that is obviously one very necessary uh, uh, action. We have put balls and chains on the financial industry in the United States. And if you don't have a healthy banking system, you can't have a healthy economic economy. That's why people get so excited about banks. And, and the regulatory cost in the banking system has gone off the chart. I, I was just at a BB&T board meeting uh, yesterday, 
And it's unbelievable how much the regulatory burden has gone. And there's basically been practically no innovation in the banking industry since Dodd-Frank was, was created. It's, it's destroyed innovation. We were the world's leader in financial services. It was a huge job creator. It was a huge competitive advantage. We misinterpreted the problem, put balls and chains on the people that were carrying the ball up the hill, and we got the real negative consequences. But we, we, got, we got a repeal of Obamacare. We got a repeal Dodd-Frank. Uh, to begin the process. But I tell you, this regulatory tack, and I talk to lots of business people, I'm, even though I'm running a think tank, my history is, is business, and, and BBT was mostly a small business lender. This regulatory attack is the broadest it's ever been because we don't have rule of law in the United States. It's important to understand that. We have rule of regulators. Congress passes all these sound good laws. They're not supposed to be able to do this constitutionally, but that's what they do, and the regulators decide what the law is, and they have this huge range, and it depends on who's leading. If you have a more free market president, they don't enforce the regulations. But if you have a very anti-free market pr uh, president, basically the law changes. Uh, for example, right now, the lending standards for small business in the United States are the tightest they've been in my 40-year career. And that's because the regulators uh, don't want to get in trouble. They don't want any banks to get in trouble. So they literally tighten the lending standards across the whole, spe the whole spectrum. And, and it's much harder for a small business to get a loan than it ever has been in 40 years in the United States. Let me get way back there in the back since. Has anybody got a? All right. My question is... No, 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 not until you get a microphone, please. My name is Kami Butt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is, what we did in Afghanistan with Taliban, according to marketplace, it's totally legal. There is nothing wrong. Uh, we give pump billion of dollars to give training to Mujahideen. They kick out Russian, and then the Mujahideen son, now they call Taliban. Now we are killing them uh, with the drone attack. So with the market defi place definition, it's perfectly legal, it's moral. But let's say that you are Mujahid, now your son is Tal Taliban in Afghanistan. Would you describe this deal with the Afghani legal and moral? Thanks. This gentleman is from Afghanistan. He was raised up in Pakistani tents. He is lucky to be here, but there are thousands of Taliban who are killing Pakistani I'm, I'm and not, Americans. I'm not sure that relates to the financial crisis. Well, I'll get a different question. <laughs> okay, we'll get one more in the back, and then we'll get to the microphones back there, and then we'll bring them down. Thank you for your talk. Uh, my question, you said we might see stagflation like we saw in the 70s. Um, how do you see Cato influencing policy going forward in the new, in a potential Romney administration since the given that he probably will have little, if any, influence in a Obama second term? Well, I, that's a great question. I hope we can uh, influence policy in, in either uh, administration. Uh, I think one of the more important areas uh, is, is, is in monetary affairs. We do have, uh, I think, the best monetary conference from a free society perspective uh, that we're getting ready to have for the uh, whatever, 25th time, Jim, I don't know, have, uh, uh, time in, in a few weeks, where we're really having serious discussions of what uh, ought to be done in terms of monetary policy, which I actually believe is the beginning of discipline for fiscal policy and how we get from where we are today to a much more disciplined economy. And I, I think there's a chance because of the, the challenges. There's enough smart people that, that don't evade uh, that are in, in uh, various roles that see that this really does not work. 
and, and know that we're facing an economic disaster. And we do have the opportunity, unique in history, to choose to learn from Europe if we will choose to learn from Europe. Uh, the welfare state has failed in Europe, and the consequences are pretty severe. It's kind of hard to ignore, you know, riots on the streets in, in Greece. And if you just run the numbers, we're eight or ten years behind. So I'm optimistic that uh, if we have a different view, let's say the Romney administration, uh, they might look for more radical solutions uh, because we can't fix our problems uh, without some fairly radical solutions because we've been getting in this mess really since the 1930s and, and we can't get out with solutions that aren't radical but actually have very positive consequences in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I went through the economic correction in the early 1980s and it was very severe, but the government basically did nothing and it was very short. <laughs> Somebody mentioned the example early, 19, early 1920s. We had a very severe economic correction. It lasted about 18 months and then we had a huge period of economic growth. In a certain sense, the number one thing we need to do is for the government not to do anything, <laughs> to deregulate, get out of the process, uh, have a, a, a reliable standard of value, and then our growth rates will, will improve. Now, that doesn't deal with all of our other economic problems, but it sets a foundation where people can be optimistic about the future, and then they're more willing to pay a price. Right now, there's no plan, and, and we're putting all these balls and chains on the most productive people, so I don't think people are willing to pay a price when there's no, you know, there's no future when there's no reason to believe we're going to have a, a, a solution. And I think if we had a rational alternative that, that required discipline, maybe people would follow. John, let me introduce a question from our online audience, which is kind of a follow-on to that one, I think. Christopher Golub asks, how do we get this message into a digestible format and into the mainstream instead of preaching to the choir? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I do think that... Um, we've got to preach to the choir to some degree because a lot of people on our side are a little muddled on a number of this stuff. They don't understand the philosophical principles. They don't understand the economic principles. They just know there's a problem, and I think we do need to do some preaching to the choir. But I also need, I think, and this is one of Cato's role, we need to impact the intellectual leaders and at least to silence some people on the left. One reason I wrote the book, as I mentioned earlier, was to destroy this myth that uh, deregulation and greed caused the financial crisis. The left... Statists live on a series of myths. One of their myths was that the robber barons were really evil people that took advantage of, of the common man. In fact, great industrialists like Rockefeller changed the quality of life on the whole planet. Uh, another myth is that Roosevelt got us out of the Depression. That's not so. The Depression didn't end after World War II and when Roosevelt policies were, in, were abandoned. So one thing we can do that I think would impact and undermine a lot of the status arguments is undermine the history that they've written, which isn't factual. And there's lots of evidence that it isn't, uh, isn't, it, that it isn't factual. Uh, David said we're still having a debate about the Great Depression. We may be, but it's proven. We know what happened. <laughs> and, so, and so the people that are debating it are, are, are from, a, from a status side are simply evading. They're evading the overwhelming evidence of actually what how state's policy caused those problems. You know, one of my personal goals is to get into things like the New York Times and other, and, and Cato does some of that, because we do have to speak to the people that don't have total agreements with us on, on economic policies and influence, uh, influence their thinking. Uh, but but it, is a, it is a tough fight. It is a tough fight um, in that regard. Yes, sir. Oh, did you? Hi. 
My name is, is Richard Osborne. Um, I heard you say you're optimistic because people in the United States basically do want freedom and want to limit government. I'm astounded to hear you say that. The, when, uh, when the uh, Citizens United came down back in, the, in 2009, um, um, it, it was criticized uh, by Obama very harshly. And, and um, uh, about uh, a month after that, it, I don't remember, it, was, it may have been Gallup, uh, one of the, of, the of the polling organizations conducted a poll in, in which they found that 80% of Americans agreed with Obama, not with the Supreme Court. And, and, what that may, and, and they even broke it down. It was not only 93% or some, I may be a little bit off on these numbers, but not much. It was not only 93% of, of, of the Democrats who agreed with Obama, it was over half the Republicans who agreed with, with him. And we got a repeat of this about a year and a half ago when the, the, uh, the issue of, of, uh, of unions, employee unions, um, uh, government employee unions came up when something like 50% uh, of, of the people polled say they, th they thought that, that unions should be more harshly regulated, but they thought that businesses, it was like 70% thought that businesses. Why are you so optimistic about this? What evidence <laughs> do you see out there that the well, <laughs> um, I am, uh, my, I've always believed in something called rational optimism. And that is, uh, if you can see a way to accomplish something, striving to accomplish it. Now, uh, David mentioned this. In my career at BB&T, I don't know how many times we were written off because we were a small farm bag and we were going to get bought. We didn't have a chance and people that were going to buy us and most of the ones that were going to buy us are now gone and we bought some of them. Um, <laughs> Anyway, during my career, we had a compound annual growth rate of 20% a year uh, for 20 years, which is a staggering mathematical phenomenon. Uh, so, I, you, know, yeah, you know, the odds radically against us, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they are. I think that if you look at where we're drifting culturally and the ideas that we're drifting, but I don't think it's hopeless. So my optimism is not that it's the most likely scenario. <laughs> the most likely scenario doesn't end well. Uh, but, the, but, it, but it's a scenario that maybe we can influence. And, and, and why I say I'm optimistic, I don't think if, unless you think there's some light at the end of the tunnel that you, I think you tend to give up. And I think it's particularly important that we give that light to young people. And, and there's, some, there's a rational reason for it, too. Our ideas are better. Ideas matter. Ideas matter. And when I see that I speak a lot. I spoke a lot before I came to Cato and universities. And I spoke a lot over a long period of time. And I found that five, ten years ago, students weren't interested. They just they weren't paying attention. I found the last several years they were interested. They figured out we've mortgaged their future. They may not know what the solution is, but they know we've really screwed them. And they're, in, they're, and they're mad at their professors in a lot of ways because they know those ideas. They don't know what the answer is. Where the void is is the answers. <laughs> but they know those, the left-wing ideas they're learning in universities are not valid. And they know their major economic, not all of them, but a lot of them. The, the best and the brightest know it. So, yeah, are the, are the odds against us? Is there lots of reason to be pessimism? I, you know, I can't argue with you. Uh, on the other hand, are there reasons to be optimistic? And I think there are. And the, and the fundamental reason is we have better ideas. The left's ideas have failed. Uh, and, and, um, and the good thing about Obama, and it's the only good thing you can find, is his ideas have failed. <laughs> and some percentage of the population realizes that. So that's my sense of optimism. It's not, yeah, we've got a 90% probability of winning. No. <laughs> but we've got enough that it's worth the fight. Worth the fight. Let's see. Let's go over there since I haven't been everybody around here. 
Yes, my name is Per Grudowski. Uh, you mentioned the difficulties of a small business and entrepreneurs to getting access to bank credit. And that's basically because they have been deemed as being risky and therefore treated discriminatory, uh, discriminating against in favor of those absolute safe, the infallibles. Where in the Constitution do you get the possibility of introducing this type of discrimination? Uh, when I read the United States cannot grant a title of nobility, well, the new titles of nobility are too big to fail, triple A's. Uh, where, where do you get all this? There's a huge discrimination. It's immoral. It's stupid. It doesn't serve in a purpose. No small, small business has ever created a financial crisis. And it introduces such distortions in the economy, you, you don't know where you stand. So where in the Constitution? How, how do these type of things well, they're not in the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, I, I think a multitude of fronts. Uh, first, crony ca capitalism, what I call crony socialism, is a huge problem in the United States, and it's getting much worse. I've seen it getting radically worse in my lifetime. And the reason for that is the government is so powerful now, it's very hard for businesses not to do something with the government because you're at risk. And the, that has changed exponentially in my career. And... and and, and that's bad, but, but, and I have no empathy for crony capitalists, okay? But on the other hand, it is fundamentally the government's fault because they're the one doling out the money, right? It's kind of the analogy, I would say, as an adult, if you have your 15-year-old child come up to you and want money and you choose to give it to them, <laughs> uh, then it's your fault if they do something dumb, right, with that money. And that the government is the one that's the problem, although I hate crony capitalists. And, and, and what we really need is a separation, a real separation of business and state like we have church and state, which is actually what the Constitution was designed to do because it only had enumerated powers and it didn't include giving away things for solar energy. It just wasn't on the list. Uh, but uh, the Constitution, unfortunately, is not being enforced. Now, Cato has a great constitutional studies group that is trying to reinvigorate that argument, saying, hey, here's the, the nine things that Congress is allowed to do. If we were to win that fight, the whole social welfare state would go away. Uh, we're not going to win that fight on that plane, but if we change the ideas enough, we might, we might win that fight. In terms of small business lending, this is an interesting thing, how you can have really unintended consequences. I started out my career as a small business lender. Uh, we, I was, we were a farm bank, we did small business loans. I love making loans to small businesses. Got a lot of friends that fortunately they took their businesses and grew and have been great success stories. Uh, and so it's a, and, but here's the problem, here's the, Here's the good news, bad news about small business lending. Small business lending is part science and part art. And the art part is judging the character of the borrower. And I know that. I mean, I had plenty of times on Friday afternoon, somebody would come in and say, look, I can't make the payroll this weekend. I'm out of business if you don't lend me some money. And I've got a receivable coming in on Monday. And I said, I made a judgment of that person and whether they would pay me back or not, whether they were telling me the truth or not. That's what small business is lending about. The, the federal regulatory people have destroyed that. And the way they've destroyed it is they've forced everybody to quantify everything. And part of the motivation is interesting how this can be, uh, you can call this unintended consequences, is something they call disparate treatment. And disparate treatment is, is you're discriminating, according to them, against somebody because of their race, sex, whatever. They've got this hundred list of, of things you can be discriminating on. And, and if, you're have, if you're making judgments, Instead of just having numbers, you can't prove <laughs> what your motivation was. So they destroyed the ability of people to make judgments in small business lending, which effectively is irrationally tightening the standards. 
and, and it's the regulators. Well, I was, we, my wife and I, we just bought a condo uh, this morning here in D.C., and we got to fill in a thousand pages of forms. And my first loans, 1971, I was making business loans. We did it on two sheets of paper. And people understood the deal. Today, we, we didn't read all that crap. We just initialed all the stuff, right? <laughs> because I couldn't have possibly. I'm, I've been in the banking business 40 years. I couldn't have understood those forms. Jeez. And that's government. I mean, it's insane. And, and what's so interesting is you, you know it's insane, but nobody wants to do anything about it. And, it, and, it, and the other thing, but one other thing I want to talk about small business. And I saw this because I started out in a small business, and I get this. All these regulations classically are targeted at large companies. That's what they say. But in fact, they're much worse for small companies because they have this, even when they're theoretically exempt, they aren't really exempt, right? And they trickle down. So let's take a small bank. If you run into a community bank, your brain is what makes the bank valuable. If you've got to spend all your time making some government bureaucrat happy, you can't go out and take care of your clients, which is the heart and soul of that business. In a big bank, you just hire a bunch of bozos to do that, right? Mostly people that already work for the government, and you hire them to <laughs> talk to each other. <laughs> it's a really great process. <laughs> and it's very expensive and very destructive, but it's not as bad as in a small... Community banks are being killed. By the way, Bernanke is systematically destroying the community banking industry. I, I love community banks. I grew up in community banks. Because of holding the yield curve down. Community banks make money by borrowing short and lending long. There's no spread in the yield curve. The whole industry could collapse. It, it'll probably just hang on by a thread, but it's destroying capital right now. And it's because of Bernanke has arbitrarily decided he wants to manipulate interest rates. Uh, and he says that's incentive in the economy, which is interesting. But that makes community banks then can't lend money to small businesses because they're under economic pressure. Yes, sir. Who wrote that New York Times piece in 1999 warning about Freddie and Fannie? I was waiting for the punchline that it was written by Paul Krugman, but who? No, <laughs> no it wasn't. Who did write that, if you know? Um, well, I can't remember the article, the piece. One of the main quotes from, was from Alex Pollock that's over at AEI. And Alex absolutely predicted, he missed by a year, but he predicted exactly what happened in, with Freddie and Fannie. And there were some other people. Well, he wasn't the only one, but he's, he was the guy that really saw it coming. And frankly, a lot of, I saw it coming in, in the industry, not, not, but you knew it didn't work. This is a mathematics. It's Freddie and Fannie were leveraged 1,000 to 1. They had, it's like having $10,000 in equity and $10 million in debt. Now, the only way you can do that is the government guarantees your debts, right? But if you're that leveraged, you can't take any risk. And they traditionally didn't take any risk. They were A-grade lenders. They got this huge pressure to get into the F-grade market, and that's, that, it, it, was statistic, it was mathematically certain, even before you started running the numbers, because the game couldn't work. I want right, Richard, right there. I, wait a minute. I meant to, uh, to say this. Richard Salzman did all the research on my book, and I needed to thank him for that. He did all the research. Thank you for the talk, John. You, you said the industry is the most regulated, the financial industry, and I agree with that. How, can, how do you square that with people knee-jerk response the minute there's a crisis saying that the problem is insufficient regulation? I mean, the two facts, you know, it is the most regulated, and then when these disasters occur, they blame it on, quote, deregulation. What, what do you attribute that to? Oh, that's a great question, and I honestly don't know the answer. I, I think... I think capitalism is an invention. 
And it's not natural in the normal sense. I think if you look at human history, we're kind of naturally tribalists. And in a tribal situation, the chief takes control when something goes wrong. And I think there's a backup psychology in, in human behavior that goes back to tribalism and it, a lot and a lot driven by envy that says, hey, those very successful guys really cause this problem. Let's put balls and chains on them. And, and that is my speculation. And of course, then there's just these historical myths that the left's done a great job of creating uh, about the nature of, of, of business in general. So they put, they pass all these regulations that makes the businesses not be successful, and then they blame the businesses because of the regulations they passed. And it's kind of been a long-term, a long-term pattern. Um, yes, sir. Somebody got a... Thank you. Um, David Abraham, retired, but looking for a publisher for my book. Okay. Uh, but during your, about in the middle of your talk, you mentioned the core libertarian ideal of a man is entitled to the fruits of his labor, in essence. Just a flyer, if the White House and the House of Representatives and, and the Senate were overtaken by 100% libertarians, <laughs> Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, putting aside the fact that those would disappear, but what would you do, what would they do with the national debt? Now, that's a fair question. You, you, you'd have to pay it down systematically. And that meant that you would create the kind of environment where we would have free markets and that entrepreneurship would be rewarded, innovation and creativity would be rewarded. And that, over time, it would take us still 20, 30 years <laughs> to pay down the debt, but we'd be moving in the right direction. And what moving in the right direction would go back to this point that was interesting. One of the problems we have, and this is maybe why I talk about, am I talking to business people? They're very pessimistic, not about necessarily next week or next quarter. They're very pessimistic about the future of the United States. They believe just what was, you know, what was said earlier. They believe it's hopeless. <laughs> you know, they, don't, they don't think we'll have the courage to deal with these problems. Now, they, a lot of them really don't have that kind of, they see it as 20, 25 years out. If we were moving in the right direction, that would radically change the willingness of entrepreneurs, and particularly in large business, by the way, to, to take more. Remember, most large businesses started as small businesses, right? I don't know of any business that started as a large business. <laughs> you know, in, in my career, BB&T grew from a small business from 300 employees to 32,000 employees. And, and I was an entrepreneur uh, in growing that business. And, and that lack of optimism, I, I, I hear my successor, who's a great job, doing a great job. I mean, he's really worried about what this means, which makes, doesn't mean you don't you quit, but it makes you much less willing to take the kind of risk that drives economic activity. Think about this. Almost everybody has a job doing something that relates to something that didn't exist 125 years ago. I mean, the obvious things are iPads and, and iPhones, but telephone, telephones, television, washing machines, dryers, cars, uh, aircraft, all kind of financial services and technology, online banking, none of that stuff existed 125 years ago. Somebody invented almost all the jobs that exist today, some human mind. Uh, people ask me what the jobs of the future are, and I say, I don't know, but I sure as heck didn't know that Steve Jobs would invent iPads either. What I do know is in a free environment, in a free economy where people have confidence that they're not going to be robbed blind and the system's not going to turn into chaos, we will have a huge amount of innovation and growth. 
So I think the key thing is changing the direction, and seriously changing the direction. And I think that would spur a much more rapid growth rate in our economy. You know, I really think the underlying potential growth rate in the global economy, we ought to be growing at 6 or 7%. I mean, you think about all the human minds that have now been energized. Think about all the geniuses in India and China that could be, if we just didn't have all these stupid government rules and regulations that are holding back human and productivity. Uh, it, it's very We ought to be doing really well. <laughs> and we've chosen to kill ourselves. And so, you know, if you really had a libertarian Congress, I really think you could really change the game. I'm, I'm not optimistic we'll get one anytime soon, but maybe. maybe. Why don't we take a last question from our adjunct scholar, Bert Ely, and then break for wine? All right. Fair enough. Somebody Raise your hand, Bert. The Uh, Bertie Lee, uh, John, um, uh, uh, great, uh, great remarks. I'd like to come back to something that you, you touched on uh, a little while back about the problems in Europe. I'm wondering if you could uh, elaborate a little bit more in terms of, number one, how you think uh, the European situation is going to play out, not just economically, but in terms of the welfare state, and then how that uh, might feed back uh, into the U.S., not just to the economy, but to how it might and in what ways might it uh, alter um, our, the people's thinking, politicians' thinking about the U.S. welfare state, and specifically Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth? Thanks, Bert. That's a really thoughtful question. Uh, let me make, I want to make one comment about Bert. Uh, I, I, when I was part of the Financial Services Roundtable, Bert invented an idea for privatizing deposit insurance that would have worked. And if we had done that, the banking system would have had dramatically less problems than it had. Unfortunately, there were a number of community banks and some really big banks that didn't want to pay the price because <laughs> we would have required them to have a whole lot more capital uh, than, than they had, and we wouldn't have had these problems. So he invented a great idea that didn't go anywhere. It was still a great idea. Um, in terms of Europe, um, I, you know, I, I don't have any super special insight, but I think the most likely scenario is it breaks up in terms of the euro that you see Northern Europe, which is basically both from a work ethic and from a financial soundness perspective, in a lot better shape than Southern Europe. Uh, and um, where France goes in that pie, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, I think that you'll see economically imposed a lot more discipline on Europe than whether they like it or not. I don't think they could, you know, if you look at one of the problems in Greece, nobody works. I mean, it's not, you, can't, you can't fix an economic problem. It's not unemployment because people are, are, uh, want to be have jobs. They want a free lunch. <laughs> and, and that's a big cultural change. And I think only market discipline imposes that. Sometimes what happens, well, I mean, unfortunately, what typically happens, you, di you drift into some kind of statism and it gets worse. Uh, and, and that could easily happen with a lot of Southern Europe um, but I, I do think that the free market ideas are out there. And the countries that pursue those ideas that discipline or eliminate their welfare states will have much better outcomes and that over time there's some chance the other countries will follow, but not necessarily. Um, but that's a little bit of the rational optimism side. I mean, it's, it's quite possible that Europe will basically not want to deal with his problems, and it could be a drag on the U.S. economy and the global economy for a long period of time. I think the Chinese are at particular risk because they have been tremendously dependent on exporting to Europe. They haven't really built their own economy. The, 
it's, you know, China is one of these quasi-statist myths. They got a semi-free market that's much freer than the U.S., by the way, in parts of China. But they got these giant state industries, and and so um, their model is not sustainable. And particularly the export model, it, and it'll go if, if Europe's growth rate drops to negative. So you could have some really tough economic cycles throughout the whole global economy. Those things tend to take longer than you predict. I remember being watching the savings and loan industry go broke in the late 1970s and early 80s, and it took a lot longer than you expected. And then when it happened, it was pretty dramatic. And, and I think we'll see Europe struggle, try to hold the euro together. And it might be five, might even be 10 years down the road. But unless they're really willing to make radical social change, it ends badly. How it ends, I don't know. And it, and it really impacts the global economic growth rate. They got our problems ahead of us. And the real question, we, we, can we learn? Can we learn? I, I just happened to see a video by a guy from Canada talking about how you know, stupid the United States was and how they didn't want to do what we did. And the guy was right. I thought that was interesting. But Canada's continued to do well despite our problems. So we don't have to go down with Europe, uh, if, if we, in fact, would fix our own problems. Thank All you right. very much. Thank you, John Allison.